Section 7 of Starved Rock, a Historical Sketch by Eaton G. Osman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Veronica Jenkins. Section 7, The Drama of the 18th Century and Starved Rock in the 18th Century. The Drama of the 18th Century. God said, I am tired of kings. I suffer them no more. My angel, his name is Freedom. Choose him to be your king. He shall cut pathways east and west and fend you with his wing. Emerson The Scenery of Tragedy Starved Rock played its humble role, or rather was a part of the mise-en-scene of the momentous drama of the 18th century, when the single struggle took place between freedom and absolutism for the possession of the fairest and greatest part of the North American continent. When the century opened, the French Empire in America was at the flood-tide of its prosperity. The triple alliance of priest, soldier, and trader had, with unerring instinct and judgment, taken possession of every route to the interior of the continent, and had so united the native tribes in the French interest that Canada and her western frontier were deemed so secure that as we have seen most of the distant garrison were withdrawn as unnecessary to the preservation of colonial autonomy in the far south though la salle's schemes had come to naught they had been revived seven years after his death by tonti who had successfully urged the seizure of louisiana for three reasons firstly as the base of attack upon mexico second as a depot for the furs and lead ores of the interior and thirdly as the only means of preventing the English from becoming masters of the West. More successful than La Salle, Diberville, though he built his fort at Biloxi, state of Mississippi, and not on the river, had actually taken possession of the mouth of the Mississippi, thus outwitting the English, who were in fact on the point of seizing the river, and retarding for more than a hundred years the development of Louisiana on lines of English freedom. New France had, therefore, two heads, one looking to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, the other to the Gulf of Mexico, and if the northern wing of the empire had its hardly concealed jealousy of the southern end, it nevertheless appreciated the value of the latter as an aid to stem the incoming tide of English influence in the north. One strategic mistake only had the builders of the Franco-American empire made, but it was vital, irremediable. They had neglected the Mohawk and Hudson rivers of New York, which were occupied by the Dutch, who were even shrewder traders than the French and more far-seeing. Up to about this time, too, the English had been content to occupy, as agriculturalists, a narrow strip along the Atlantic coast, where they busied themselves and, fortunately for future generations, worried themselves, too, and their governors with questions of political and religious rights and privileges, rather than with what the continent contained behind the Appalachian Wall, which few of them cared to penetrate or to cross. The Hudson and the Mohawk Rivers, however, pierced that wall, and when now the Dutch possessions in New York came into the hands of the English, the character of the Albany colony did not wholly change, but the Englishman began to appreciate the possibilities of the vast interior for trade, for he even then was a more successful trader than even the Dutchman. 
For twenty-five years the English traders had been established on Hudson's Bay, diverting the northern trade of New France from the St. Lawrence. If now the English should also get a foothold on the Great Lakes and in the famous beaver country of the present Michigan Peninsula, the northern wing of New France would be hemmed within very narrow limits indeed, and her trade ruined by the cheaper and better goods of the Yankees. The cession to the English by the Iroquois in 1701 of all their claims to the country formerly occupied by the Hurons precipitated the struggle which the shrewd Count Frontenac had long foreseen, but which the political clerical influence with his successors and the proverbial corruption of the court at Quebec had left the colony more or less unprepared to meet. These Iroquois lands were bounded by the lakes Ontario, Huron, and Erie, containing in length about 800 miles and in breadth 400 miles, including the country where beavers and all sorts of wild game keep. They pierced the very heart of New France. The problem, then, that confronted the French authorities at Quebec was how to stem this unpropitious tide. The building of a fort at Detroit by La Carillac was the first step in opposition. Another step in the same direction brings us back again to Starved Rock and the Illinois. Starved Rock in the 18th century. Freedom all winged expands, nor perches in a narrow place. Her broad van seeks unplanted lands. Emerson. The Indian Sieges. Wherever the French came in contact with them, their relations to the Indians were, for the most part, singularly felicitous. This fact may find explanation, aside from the natural adaptability of the French, in the circumstance that they made no effort to dispossess the Indians of their lands or hunting grounds. It was at least tacitly agreed that the savages should be left in undisturbed possession of the whole of the vast domain of the West, on condition that they allowed the French to control or monopolize its trade, besides the coureurs de bois who made New France and built the chain of forts which bound the West to Canada, though proud of their French blood and language, were in the bush quite as much Indian as French, and thus they had immense influence over them. Above all, the coureurs hated the English, and being the shrewdest of diplomats, they won over the Indians to themselves, and both patrolled the forests and lakes as against the venturesome Englishmen. Even the Iroquois had become neutral for the time, and the destiny of America seemed already decided, for the lilies of France floated without opposition over the entire expanse from Quebec to the mouth of the Mississippi, and from the Alleghenies to the base of the Rocky Mountains. But the curse of Canada was the monopoly held by the one trading company which had legal control of all the commerce of the colony, and whose goods were not only poorer, but were extortionately high as compared with those of the English. The Indians were not slow to discover this difference, and they began to chafe under the French trading yoke. This was especially true of the Foxes of Wisconsin, a nation whose renown for bravery, independence, intractability, and endurance was then second to that of no tribe of the West. The behavior of the Foxes so exasperated the French authorities that it was understood, at least among the Indian allies of the French, that the governor desired the utter extermination of the Fox Nation. The massacre of a large part of them at Detroit in 1712 may or may not have been deliberately planned by the French, but it seems to have been so understood by the Allies, who, after the siege was over, 
wherein several hundred foxes were butchered, set out for Quebec to claim the reward which they insisted the governor had promised for the fox's destruction. The tragedy at Detroit, though it crippled the fox nation, did not destroy it, nor break the spirit of these indomitable savages. It only deepened their dislike of the French into a grim and undying hatred. After a short truce, during which they made an alliance with the Sioux, the foxes in small war parties began to harass the Illinois, so that by 1714 the latter were practically driven away from their old homes on the Illinois, never to return, having settled under the protecting arms of the French at Kaskaskia and Fort Chartres on the Mississippi. Indeed, the foxes, by their settlement on Fox River of Wisconsin and their destruction of the Illinois, had become virtual masters of both lines of travel between the east and the west, and communication between France and Louisiana became extremely difficult and dangerous. In fact, they had almost split the empire of New France asunder. The situation had become desperate, therefore, and in 1716 de Levigny was sent with 800 French and Indian allies to crush the foxes at their Wisconsin village. The latter were again badly punished and gave hostages to preserve peace, but when, 1718, it appeared that but one of the hostages remained alive, and he had lost an eye, the foxes again became restless and soon began anew to harass the Illinois tribes. At length the crisis came. The Illinois, in 1722, captured the nephew of Oshala, the principal fox war chief, and burned him alive on which the foxes attacked them, drove them to the top of Starved Rock for refuge, and held them there at mercy. This Illinois tribe was the Peoria, the last of the tribes to cling to the famous stronghold of La Salle at Starved Rock, all the other tribes having fled to the west. Unluckily, we know nothing of the details of the siege, except the numbers of the slain, twenty Peorias and one hundred and twenty of the besiegers, says Hebbard, but the bare figures are eloquent. They tell not of a mere blockade, but of fierce assaults, storming parties, desperate attempts to scale the heights, the old story of Fox's fury and reckless courage. News of this attack on the Peorias having reached Fort Chartres, a detachment of a hundred men commanded by Chevalier d'Artiquette and Sieur de Tisne was sent to their assistance. Before this reinforcement reached the rock, however, the foxes raised the siege and departed. The Peorias, nevertheless, abandoned their Illinois home, which they had occupied up to this time, and united with the other tribe at Kaskaskia, so that, after all, the foxes had been successful and again had control of the very heart of New France, the Illinois River. It was a grave disaster for the French, Chalevois says, for now that there is nothing to check the raids of the foxes, communication between Canada and Louisiana became less practicable. At Versailles this last offense of the foxes seemed unpardonable, and the colonial minister declared that the Otagamis, foxes, must be effectually put down, and that His Majesty will reward the officer who will reduce or rather destroy them. In 1728, therefore, Sieur de Lignery went from Quebec with 500 French and a 1,000 Indians to destroy the foxes. In August they burned the Indians' village in Wisconsin and destroyed their crops, but the nimble foxes escaped him. In 1730, Colon de Villiers, who in 1754 defeated George Washington at Fort Necessity, 
appeared at Quebec with the news that his father, commander of the old Fort Miami on St. Joseph River, had struck the foxes a severe blow, killing two hundred of their warriors and six hundred women and children. Vier's force of one hundred and seventy Frenchmen had been gathered from various western posts and was assisted by twelve to thirteen hundred Indian allies under Sours de Sonange, father and son from the Illinois settlements, and de Noyelles from among the Miamis in Indiana. The accounts of the affair are obscure and not very trustworthy, says Parkman. It seems that the foxes began the fray by an attack on the Illinois at La Salle's old station of La Roche, Starved Rock, on the river Illinois. On hearing of this, the French commanders mustered their Indian allies, hastened to the spot, and found the foxes entrenched in a grove which they had surrounded with a stockade. The battle began on the 19th of August, 1730, and lasted twenty-two days, said Hebbard, who bases his account upon the narrative of Furland. The foxes had chosen an admirable position in a piece of woods upon a gentle slope by the side of a small river. Although outnumbered four to one, they fought with their usual dash and valor, making many desperate sorties, but were each time driven back by the overwhelming numbers of the enemy. The French, on their part, dug trenches and proceeded with all the caution they had been taught by many campaigns against these redoubtable foes. After a while the supply of food gave out and famine reigned in both camps. The foxes and the French suffered alike under the calm, cruel impartiality of nature. Two hundred Illinois Indians deserted, but the French persevered and began the construction of a fort to prevent the besieged from going to the river for water. Further resistance now seemed impossible, but on the 8th of September a violent storm arose accompanied by heavy thunder and torrents of rain. The following night was rainy, dark, and cold, and under its cover the foxes stole away from their fort. Before they had gone far, the crying of their children betrayed them, but the French did not dare to attack them amidst a darkness so dense that it was impossible to distinguish friend from foe. In the morning, however, they set out in hot pursuit. The pursuit became a mere massacre, the foxes being then without ammunition, from which only fifty or sixty of the foxes escaped. Many of them were burned at the stake. And the Canadian governor's report to Paris closes with the cheering news, Behold a nation humiliated in such a fashion that they will never more trouble the earth. In truth, the offending tribe must now, one would think, have ceased to be dangerous, but nothing less than its total destruction would content the French. The French, however, never afterwards sent an expedition against the foxes, but turned them over to the tender mercies of their allies, especially the Hurons, their deadly enemies. But even they failed to annihilate these splendid savages, the remnant of whom allied themselves with the Sox, a tribe who, as the Sox and foxes, were a continued menace to the frontier, and in 1832, rose in open war with the United States authorities under their famous chief Black Hawk. Though they met the fate of all their race, nevertheless the foxes unconsciously, as has been seen, played an important part in shaping the destiny of the continent, for it was no slight service to liberty as opposed to absolutism that they closed the gateway between Canada and Louisiana, and for thirty years virtually kept it closed, 
thus preventing the consolidation of new france and paving the way for the anglo-saxon conquest and occupation when the time was ripe for that happy event starved rock then as the spot where took place the most important of those struggles between the french and their unconquerable savage foes thus became a by no means insignificant part of the scenery of that greater contest of races and ideas which ultimately closed by handing the continent over to its rightful inheritors the free men of america end of section seven recorded by veronica jenkins in ottawa illinois